You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. Each week on our podcast, I speak with industry leaders about issues surrounding wealth management, retirement, financial advice, and technology. I talk to those who are leading the way as we seek to help advisors, clients, participants, and firms enjoy better financial outcomes all around the confluence of digital and human advice. I especially enjoy conversations with people who are thinkers and incisive observers of what goes on in our industry. Today, we are going to have just such a conversation with uh, Chip Rome. Chip is the founder and managing partner of Tiburon Strategic Advisors and the Tiburon CEO Summits. He's also a leading strategic advisor to CEOs and other senior executives and boards of directors in the wealth and investment management, as well as the wealth tech uh, space. So, Chip, welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck. Great. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. So, Chip, let's start with you telling our audience about Tiburon. I can't imagine they would miss what you all do, because uh, I know I've, I've paid attention for a long time and we are members. But how you got started with Tiburon and how you got started advising CEOs? Yep, you got it. Let's see. So, Tiburon's 24 years old next week. So, 24th anniversary next week. By way of personal background, I went to business school and all that stuff. I was a McKinsey consultant in financial services out of business school. And then I worked at Schwab as the strategy guy 28 years ago or some odd number like that. And about 24 years ago, started Tiburon. So my background was McKinsey strategy projects with financial services companies and Schwab strategy, discount brokerage and mutual fund supermarkets and RIAs and things like that. And we launched Tibron in 1998, so 24 years ago. How did you come up with the idea? Where did it come from? Obviously, you're doing sound like you were doing strategy at Schwab and maybe some other spots, but how did you decide to launch it? Because it's kind of a unique program in our industry. Yeah, yeah. For those aspiring entrepreneurs out there, I'm probably not your case study. I did not really try to launch Tibron. I didn't write a business plan. I didn't think anything about this. I just was kind of done in corporate America and you know hung out a shingle. Did a few consulting projects for mutual fund companies, and this was kind of pre-ETFs and, you know, so some mutual fund companies and some RIAs. And I knew the, what was it, Schwab then, the FAS business, financial advisor services, the RIA custody business extremely well. I knew the mutual fund supermarket, one source in the mutual fund marketplace extremely well. I knew online trading extremely well. So Actually, it didn't even have a name. Tibron didn't have the name Tibron Strategic Advisor. It was just me. And I took my admin from Schwab and hired one analyst. And, and that was the beginning of Tibron. I think the inflection point, Jack, was about three years later. So that was 1998. About three years later, I had done 20 or 30 or 50 consulting projects and for about 20 different companies. And they all sounded different to me. So you know, I'd come out of this Schwab-centric world and I meet firms like M Financial Group that do high-end life insurance. And I'm like, huh, never heard of you. you know? And I helped them. And that was interesting to me. And then I'd do a project for like the Bank of Hawaii. I'm like, wow, this is a real retail. People really go in bank branches. huh? You know, and so it just started putting it together. <laughs> and that was the beginning of the Tiburon CEO Summit. So I stopped doing consulting projects probably 15 years ago. I haven't done a consulting project in a long time. Launched the Tiburon CEO Summits. We write research. I sit on a bunch of boards. I guess I sit on seven or eight or nine company board of directors today. We invest in some fintech companies. And so Tiburon's taken on kind of a different life. There's no more consulting going on, more the CEO summits than my personal board portfolio. Gotcha. And talk, if you would, about the CEO summits, because those are fascinating. Talk about the 
constraints and who can participate and how did that evolve? I mean, it's, I think it's a master show personally, but how did that all get started and talk a little bit about what it's like today? Yeah. So again, a bit like the firm, Tiburon, Tiburon CEO summits were not a master plan. It was, uh, I think the, the original, maybe 10 of them, we're on number 42, Jack. The one coming up in May will be number 42. And I think we had about 10 of them at the local Tiburon Hotel. It's called the Water's Edge for the handful of people who even know where Tiburon is. We might have had 15 Tiburon member client people sitting around a table. And then our law firm, who is Paul Hastings in San Francisco, ponied up and said, hey, if you want to make this bigger, you can use our conference room. And so we had maybe 10 of them at the Paul Hastings conference room, and that sat about 75 people. And again, if you were a Tiburon, we didn't call it a member back then. If you were a Tiburon client, if you had hired us to do a consulting project, you were welcome to come. And that grew to be about 75 or 100 people. And then we were standing on top of each other at the Paul Hastings conference room. And a fellow, Skip Schweiss, who many of you may know, who then was actually, he wasn't even at TD Ameritrade yet. He was still at the old Fiserv at that point. The Fiserv custody yeah, business yeah. at that point said, hey, if you ever want to take this out and make this bigger, I'll be your first sponsor. And so we moved to the Ritz-Carlton Hotels. And that was in San Francisco. Then maybe the next year we started doing our spring summit in New York. And so speed up the world. We've now done 20 or 30 of them between New York, San Francisco. And then last fall, we tried Dallas, who was a big hit. And coming up in May, we're doing the Boston Four Seasons. And I think we have record attendance already. So, you know, so on they go. So again, it, there was no master plan in fairness. It was me gathering people <laughs> who had different thoughts, not, not so different, Jack, than what you're doing on these podcasts. And, you know, I was putting them around a physical table. You're putting them on podcasts, but sure, putting thought sure. leaders in a room yeah. and discussing, and it's now taken on its own life. And we'll probably deliver 300 CEOs to to the Boston Summit, now all of whom are Tiburon members, and the most junior person in the room is an EVP, Executive Vice President. So it's truly a CEO yeah, summit yeah. across a lot of different companies. Having participated in a couple, I can tell you as a participant, they're fascinating because it's the best and brightest in our business. The leaders of our industry are all there. You get to talk to people and it's peer-to-peer -peer and you get to learn a bunch and you get to share a bunch. and. And that's in the in the hallways. And then, of course, from the stage, Chip gives a great presentation, has some fabulous CEO guests. This past one in Dallas, which I attended, uh, Walt Bettinger, who I read about, followed for a long time, but got to hear him in person, just a, a brilliant mind. And Chip does a masterful job of letting the CEO tell a story. And so you get to hear what that thought process, it's fascinating. Maybe expand on that and just in terms of what might be in store for Boston. Yeah. So there are about 55 or 58 speaking slots on the agenda. Uh, by definition, all speakers are a CEO or a president of a company. So I would tell you that's my hardest job all year to deliver 58 new speakers every time. And we also have an internal policy of no speaker can come back any more often than once every two years. That's every four Tiburon CEO summits. Mm -hmm. So delivering 55 or 58 speakers repetitively, not using the same is a big challenge. With the way we set it up yep. generally is uh, panels of four CEOs with a Tiburon facilitator. It seems to be a big hit. We ask them all the same question, which is, tell us three interesting, meaty, strategic issues you want to talk with the audience about. And it just it just flows. I think, Jack, it's very McKinsey-esque. It's very high level strategy, what's going on in the industry. And then periodically, your reference to Walt, we've given the Tiburon Award out uh, maybe 12, maybe 13 or 14 times to just people in the industry. It's voted on by the attendees. So Walt Bettinger won the Tiburon CEO Summit Award a few years ago. 
I think the first winner was Chuck Schwab and then Ned Johnson, who we just lost a few uh, days ago, and Joe Mansueto from Morningstar and Jack Vogel, who we lost, and Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp. And you know, these are the names who've won the Tiburon CEO Summit Award. And when we have them back, and only when we have them back, do I do a fireside chat with each one of them. So coming up at the Tiburon Boston Summit, we have two award winners back. Bob Reynolds, who built the 401k business at Fidelity and then went on to run Putnam and other firms, and then Mark Cassidy, who built LPL Financial. So they're prior Tiburon award winners, and I'll do a fireside chat with each one of them, the upcoming Tiburon Summit. So that's what I did with Walt, and I agree with you. Walt's a terrific speaker and a terrific, terrific proponent for the entire industry, not just his firm. Yeah, and a wonderful human being, which you, uh, you can get, you know, by, by listening to just the way he delivers the thoughtfulness and, and what, he, what he talks about that's not directly business related, but just culture and all that kind of stuff. He's really a remarkable person. I really enjoyed that presentation in particular. So, Chip, you're immersed in the data, given what your firm does, and also the daily conversations with what seems to be every C-suite level person in our industry. What are some of the key issues you're following now, some of the things you're paying close attention to? This may be a dozen. I was actually this morning, Jack, thinking about my own Tiburon presentation for May. And, you know, there's probably I got about 10 big points. I'll feed you three or four of them in the interest of time. But I think starting at the beginning, I think one point that I think people overlook is um, I think the Gen X consumer is the big opportunity for the next 10 years. When you work your way through the data, you realize Gen X will save and invest more money than will baby boomers and millennials combined in the next 10 years. I think people overlook that. There's a lot of buzz about boomers and their retirement and the wealth transfer. There's a lot of buzz about millennials and how they're so influential and all that. But in dollars and cents, next 10 years is a lot about the Gen X investor. Then you get on to questions about, is it the high net worth or is it the mass affluent? Are there more women, more minority investors, et cetera? But I think one big point that listeners should think hard about is what generation of investors are your future right now? The second one's probably around the product side. You know, my view is very much that active management's on the decline. You know, exchange traded funds and specifically index side, a passive side of ETFs have taken a ton of share. Everyone knows that. Index mutual funds continue to take asset or continue to take share. Direct indexing is kind of the hot dot on the horizon now, personalized or direct indexing. We saw a whole bunch of mergers, firms snapping up, just invest in Aperio and all these parametric, all these firms. So I think that's a big hot dot. You know, there's still some alternatives buzz as well. Crypto is a buzz, obviously. Probably the real hot trend that people aren't talking enough about, though, is the value added of financial planning and tax planning specifically. We get all immersed in investment management and kind of stop. We stop being financial planners and we start being investment planners. So I think there's a whole thing around a whole trend there around what is going on in investments. And is it really even about investments or is it about financial planning? That's probably a second good one for all your listeners to think about. So, Chip, one of the things I think you'll find interesting, my colleague Mark Hoffman is one of the speakers at the upcoming uh, Tiburon in Boston. I think you'll be intrigued by what he has to say because one of the things that, as you know about Lifefield, we do tax optimization. And what's become increasingly clear with all the different firms we work with, that it has to start with a financial plan, but financial plans don't do tax planning to a minor degree, but it's not anywhere near what they might. And they're just not built it for that. That's not how they were designed in the first place. That's where we're doing increasingly where we are attached to a financial plan to then show how to implement a tax smart strategy across multiple accounts and, and holdings. And I think you'll enjoy the presentation because it really sort of gets at it. We actually did an analysis of what financial planning can achieve, which we're huge proponents of financial planning. 
but you really need to add that tax alpha aspect to it to pull it off. So I think you'll be intrigued when you when you hear the presentation. And honestly, if you look at any of the studies, so like, you know, Morningstar was out early with the study they called Gamma. You know, Schwab has yep. a study, Investnet yep. has a study, Vanguard has a study that yep. try to prove what an advisor is worth, not what investment management is worth, but what's the what's the value of an advisor. And they all come up to two or three percent or something sure. like that. But yep. when you dig yep. into it, Jack, half of it is always taxes. You know, it's yep. it's, you know, yeah. some of it's asset location and things like that. Some of it's, you know, harvesting capital gain, you know, whatever it is. But a lot of it leads back to taxes is what you know, what is financial planning? Maybe it's mostly tax planning. There's probably some insurance planning, some other aspects that need to go in there, but a lot of it's tax planning. Our phrase for it is tax planning is the new alpha. That's the Tiburon one-liner on it. Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. Actually, that was uh, Mark's presentation to a large degree. One of the things that we've been doing a lot of analysis around is we identify, and there's arguable a few more, a few less, but there's five ways to improve tax alpha. One is asset location. That is far away the biggest impact. There's transitions or rebalancing. There's tax loss harvesting, which Frankly, if you do ask a location, well, you don't have to do as much tax loss harvesting down the road. There's ways to mitigate that. We do that also in terms of what we do. And then the other alpha is around income generation across multiple accounts, but all presume that you're going to manage. You have to manage, look at all the accounts to do a wise tax strategy. You can't do it account by account. You can, but you're going to have far more impact if you do it in combination and consider all those factors in concert. Just one plug for you guys. I think defining tax alpha as four or whether you said four or five things, you know, but I think that's super helpful for audiences like Tibron, because I think the term financial planning gets thrown around a lot. Even the term tax planning or tax alpha gets thrown out a lot. If you actually can say, hey, practically, that means do these three things or these seven things or whatever. That's very, very helpful. So I, I like yeah. to uh, bust through the uh, one-liners and try to get uh, what the hell are you actually telling me to do? You know. So yes, actually, uh, to Chip's credit, in terms of when he asks his speakers to for their thoughts, he really wants to kind of get to the heart of the matter. Which I, one of the things I enjoy as an audience participant, audience member at the conferences, is that I hear good stuff. I don't hear the usual blah blah blah. It's kind of getting at the heart of the matter, which uh, you deserve a lot of credit for doing it that way. I think, frankly, Jack, that's me reacting to how I grew up. I grew up in an industry where I'd go to the the ICI mutual fund conference and a bunch of people stood around telling them, telling each other how great mutual funds were, right? <laughs> ETFs ate their lunch is what happened. But you know, they were still telling each other, you know, or you go to the MMI and everyone's talking about separately managed accounts. Or you go to the you know, insurance conference and insurance is the solution to everything. It's, it's all these conferences where they basically feed their own egos. Yes, kind of yes, thing. And I'm yes. like, yeah, come on, let's, let's get practical here. I could not agree yeah. with you more. Okay. So third big trend category to me is what channels are winning. And again, I think we overlook this a lot as well. The discount broker, robo advisor channel, which I would include like Fidelity Retailed and Vanguard Retail in there, that channel is doing extraordinarily well. And I think people overlook that channel and they yep. poo poo that channel. And you know, I, I just am a proponent for the good work that those firms are doing and serving that validator consumer who needs a little help and a little advice. And I think people poo poo Robinhood, I think wrongly. Yep. I remember yep. the days they talked down about Schwab and said, oh, you know, Schwab can have all those little accounts, you know, someday they'll all come to fill in the blank. They'll all come to Merrill Lynch or wherever. And well, that's not what happened. They were wrong, you know. And I would say, you know, the Robin Hoods and the Acorns and the Stash and the Schwab retails, all these that are out there gathering tons of clients and serving lots of accounts, they'll hang on to those clients. They will expand their offers and hang on to them. So one part of channels is that. Yep. 
The other part of channels is the great growth specifically in the RIA market. You know, people like to call it the independent advisor market, but it's really not. It really is the RIA side of the independent market. You know, the independent BD market is not growing nearly as fast. It's the fee-only RIAs. It's the Mariners and Mercers and Edelmans and Cap Trusts and, you know, all worse than fill in your favorite blank. There's a lot of them out there. But these firms are doing extraordinarily well. So I think, you know, third big trend I'd get the listeners to focus on is which channels are you serving? Which channels are you in? Are you in the right channel? You know, the wirehouses are frankly doing moderately well. I think people also talk down the wirehouses. I think who's struggling the, the bank channel, the insurance channel, the regional broker-dealer channel, and to some degree, the independent broker-dealer channel are all doing worse. You know, the leaders are the RIAs and the discount brokers, and the wirehouses are kind of holding their own. So that's my view of channels. That's kind of my third big point. I'd like to get your thoughts as we record this uh, end of March. There was this announcement with Goldman Sachs and Next Capital, and then not too long ago was United Capital, and somewhere in between was Folio Investing. And they're actually going to serve not only their wealth management business through their Goldman Sachs private bank or whatever they call it and ACO and all that, but also they're going out to the RA market. That's where they intend to go as well. So, and then you see Morgan Stanley with E-Trade and with Solium and building out a retirement business, doing deals, distribution, mostly deals with uh, Empower and Bestwell. You see them packaging up capability that goes beyond the traditional wealth management. JP Morgan is making a lot of noise, hiring a lot of people, buying up, they just bought global shares. They bought 55 IP before. Talk if you would, I'm not sure where that fits in the channel context, but clearly the big players are going, going all in. They're putting all their chips in. It's all around technology. It's all around getting assets. So, if you would, talk what your what are your thoughts around that whole trend? Yeah, I think there's actually two different trends buried in the examples you gave there. One trend is actually a product trend, and it's these firms getting into direct indexing and other products like that. Yep. So, when you look at BlackRock's acquisitions, or you look at Vanguard's acquisitions, or or even JP Morgan's, I think some of those are more to be a bigger product player, okay. whereas the other guys are going after the RIA channel. Yep. And whether they're going to be RIAs or be custodians to RIAs, I think those are the two opportunities there. So I think at the end of the day, if you boil down everyone's strategy, and I, I find it funny people can't say this out loud, is a lot of these firms have just discovered the RIA market is what's happened. Yep. They yep. discovered how fast it's growing. And then they're doing one of three things. They're either going to be the RIA, so that's Goldman Sachs buys United Capital. They're going to be a custodian to the RIA, so that's buying Folio FN, right? Or they're going to be a bigger product provider to the RIA, so you buy some direct indexing firm. So at the end of the day, wow, we discovered the RIA market. Should we be one or should we serve them somehow? To me, that's what's going on. Legacy financial services firms. And I would say you're mentioning the savvy ones. So let's call out loud that Goldman and JP Morgan and others are the savvy ones of the legacy firms. They figured this out. Now, in fairness, they're 20 years behind. So firms like Schwab and Fidelity and TD Ameritrade and Vanguard, or DFA, figured out the, you know, the RIA market 20 years ago and have been way down that path for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So these firms are now jumping in. I think these firms are smart and they have a lot of good people and they have a lot of capital to buy things. So they'll be players too. But I don't think they all have the same strategy. I think they all see the growth of the RIA's channel and are trying to play in it somehow. Yep. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So proceed. Any other key points that you want to highlight? Yeah. The fourth one I would just say is organic growth is the critical thing in this RIA channel. Frankly, it is in any channel. But when you actually parse through 
the PE multiples and you parse through whether you're in the private market and it's what are the PE private equity firms paying or whether you're in the public multiples and you look at Schwab's multiple versus Morgan Stanley's or Schwab's versus Focus or CI Financial versus Focus. So if you really think through what is the market telling you, who's getting the big PE multiples, it's all about organic mm-hmm, growth, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in Edelman Financial Engines and you're growing or you're a cap trust and you're growing, you get a way higher multiple than a firm that is not growing. Yep, yep. And I think people overlook that. There's secondly, a size multiple, which means I as a large acquirer can buy you as a small firm at a lower multiple. And as soon as I own you, I, I, I pick up some multiple lift on your, on your uh, profits there, yep, right? Yep. And that's a really good thing. But I get to be the buyer. I get to be the consolidator if I can drive the highest P.E. So firms like Schwab have these super high P.E.s. That's really cool. You know, I'm on a whole bunch of boards in the industry like, you know, Edelman Financial Engines is a private company that will probably go public someday. This is an organic growth story. This is super cool. You know, the market's going to love this thing. I'm on the Facet Wealth Board. This is an organic growth story. This is super cool. Things like this are going to get high multiples in the public market. So when you think about what gets you a high multiple, it's all about lead generation. Are you growing? Can you generate leads? Right? Can you serve them efficiently? What we're doing right now, virtual service is a big part of that, right? So you know, firms like, again, Facet Wealth you know, is I don't know, five years old now, has 11 or 12,000 clients, doesn't own an office. You know, every single client is only virtual, right? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty powerful thing. And that drives a level of service that drives a higher profit margin and that drives a higher PE. Mm-hmm. So I think this fourth bucket I'd have, aside from my prior points about consumer wealth, about products, about channels, is all about organic growth and getting the highest PE. To me, that's about lead gen and efficient service and driving a high margin. Yep. Yep. Talk a little bit, if you would, about, you talk about PE, but sort of underlying or sort of a fundamental is just plain old assets. I mean, all these firms, not all, but many firms reported significant increases in net new assets, I think largely driven by the fact that people are retiring and consolidating. But I'd love your comments on on that. Is That seems to be the driver ultimately is how do I have more assets and how do I maintain my fee structure? When you look at new assets, I mean, granted, only public companies really review it and reveal net new asset flows and not even all of them reveal net new asset flows, but you generally see Schwab and Fidelity out in front, you know, with four or $500 billion per year of net flows. The wirehouses, two of the four wirehouses reveal their flows. Sometimes they're way down around 100. Sometimes they're up in the two or 300 zone. But you think about, you know, 15 or 20,000 Merrill Lynch brokers versus Schwab and Schwab has higher flows, right? And you go, wow, what's that telling you? That's telling you that someone's voting for the discount broker channel and or the RIA channel for which they custody. But one or both of those channels must be growing. And you just look at the net flows every year and Schwab, Fidelity on the channel side and on the product side, you know, it's Vanguard, it's BlackRock, you know, the flows are going to the index expensive index products, yep, you know? Yep. So I think DFA has got a great franchise, you know, I think there's just, you know, certain firms have, you know, have all the growth that I think, you know, we sit around and pontificate about a million different theories, but if you actually really look at the data, I don't know how you include, you, you can't really conclude much other than, you know, Schwab Fidelity on the distribution side, BlackRock, DFA, Vanguard on the product side, just are getting all the flows. That's great. Very cool. What haven't we covered that you're paying attention to? This has been fascinating. I think the end game, I think, is interesting is I think you're going to see a flood 
of RIA channel IPOs, maybe five-ish years from today. So, you know, the way we play this out is we watch, you know, I guess let's let's just call out already public would be CI Financial and Focus Financial are already public. Maybe someone else I'm forgetting about, but they're already out in the public market. But you have this lineup now of Cap Trust and Edelman Financial Engines and Wealth Enhancement Group and Creative Planning and Mariner and Mercer and Allworth and, you know, pick your favorite, mm-hmm. you know, dozen of them. Yep. There's a, I mean, there might be 30, 40, 50 of these firms now that now measure their assets in the tens or maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. I think you'll see them consolidate. We jokingly call that the consolidation of the consolidators. So, you know, those that rolled up some firms will now marry each other yep, and yep. you'll see the consolidation of consolidators. Not so different than what the wirehouses did. Yep. Like you think through, you know, what is what is UBS? Well, it's mostly Payne Weber. Or Morgan Stanley was Dean Witter and a bunch of other firms or Wells Fargo was Wachovia Securities and A.G. Edwards and a whole bunch of other firms. You know, that's how they got there. They consolidated yep. over time. Yep. Right. Yep. And so yep. I think you're going to see these firms continue to consolidate by in the you know, 300 and 500 million dollar RIAs buying the one and two and five billion dollar RIAs. And then you'll see these firms that are hundreds of billions start merging with each other. Then there'll be several hundred billion dollars and they'll be in the public market. So yeah. maybe about five years out now, I think you'll see a lineup at the door. It'd be a good time to be an investment banker. You know, if you're like uh, <laughs> taking companies public, you're Goldman Sachs or FT Partners or one of these firms that takes firms public. Probably pretty exciting time for you. RIA channel about yeah, maybe three, certainly five years from today. That's great. So this has been fascinating, Chip, and we try to keep our podcast under half an hour and our time goes uh, short. So what are three key takeaways you'd leave with our audiences? We covered a lot of ground, but what would you identify as three key takeaways? I'll give you three that conflict with one another so that your audience can chew on them. <laughs> Number one, to me, it's all about organic growth, yeah. right? The market is efficient. You know, those that have organic growth will grow the fastest. That's the first point, right? So if you're Mercer and you figured out the Schwab referral program or you're Edelman and you figured out radio leads or if you're Morgan Stanley and you buy Solium Capital to to hand leads to your advisors, you buy E-Trade Retail to deliver leads, they get it. Those firms are all doing things to drive organic flow to their advisors, right? So point one is you got to have an organic growth strategy. Buy leads from Smart Asset or Wiser Advisor or NerdWallet, but somehow you got to figure out organic growth. Yep. Number two is I think the consolidation it hasn't even got started. Like everyone who talks about RIAs have done all these acquisitions and all. When you look at the data, Jack, it's de minimis, right? Yep. You know, d- depending on what you count as an independent advisor, it's tens or hundreds of thousands of them. And we can count under a thousand transactions every year. So that's certainly not a lot of consolidation yet. I think it will be a lot of consolidation, but not yet. So I think the consolidation plays still on the horizon. This is the one I'll say for the other side. I do not believe in the demise of the small advisor. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the common wisdom says if you're therefore, since there's all this consolidation, if you're not ginormous tomorrow, you're going to be out of business. Mm-hmm. I think that's hogwash. I, I, I don't. There's no basis for that to me. Yep. If you're a if you're a fifty million dollar RIA or maybe a hundred million, but a fifty million dollar IA. And you're, I live in San Francisco, not the greatest place to pick if you're going to be a small firm. But if you got a $50 million RIA firm, you charge 1% a year, your revenues are 500000 bucks. maybe you serve 80 or 100 clients, the chance that you're going to have face a lot of competition is pretty darn low. The chance that you have good technology and can have a high profit margin is pretty high. 
If you're making 500K of revenues and maybe pocketing 300 or 350 of it every year, that is a pretty good life yep, in 90% yep. of the world. Sure, so sure, absolutely. I don't think small advisors are really as threatened as everyone says they are. I do believe in the consolidation. I don't believe in the therefore small advisors are in trouble. So that's one I put on the other side of the on the line that people can chew on. I couldn't agree more. One last question, uh, Chip, as we do each week with our podcast, as we bring our session to a close, can you tell us something interesting or unique you do outside of work that people may not know about you or would find interesting? Okay, here. So I'll give you two. So I do two social things that I do on an annual basis that your listeners are all welcome to participate in. One, I lead the Tiburon Impact Adventures with a guy named Scott Hansen, who's the CEO of Allworth Financial, and a guy, Craig Wheats, who's a president of First Rate. Uh, and we take a group of 50 or 100 people to Mexico. We just did this a couple of weeks ago, just south of Tijuana, Mexico, and we build houses for uh, underprivileged families. That's fair. So we do that every year, end of February. It takes us two days to build a house. About 15 people on one house can build a house in two days. We were there just a few weeks ago. We took 50 people and we built three houses. That's so it's great. called the Tiburon Impact Adventures. I welcome your listeners into that. Separately, every summer, I lead something that we jokingly call the Chip and Skip Excellent Adventures, <laughs> which is an outdoor hiking group. And we pick a, a national park or resort every year. Uh, last year, we went to Montana, the Glacier National Park, and we go on a whole bunch of beautiful hikes there. It's a bunch of industry people just hanging out. We had we had 60 people last summer. Uh, and this summer, we're going to go to Lake Tahoe in California. I think that's the beginning of August. And again, your listeners are all welcome to jump in on that one, too. Terrific. So that's two things I do um, when I'm when I'm not working. Gotcha. That's terrific. Thanks, Chip. So, Chip, I uh, really enjoyed our conversation. I, ex- I had high expectations. You've exceeded them. I look forward to our next conversation, which is probably going to be in Boston in a few weeks. And we'll see you at, at the Tiburon Conference there. For our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, uh, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at uh, Wealth Tech on Deck. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again, Chip. It's been a real pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me, Jack. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.